sometimes while we're sitting here. The question may occur to us, what am I doing? What am I doing here? And uh, sometimes, of course, it's the, uh, the mind that's just uh, wanting to be somewhere else. Sometimes, of course, it's actually a rather useful question to ask, not just with regard to this retreat or this particular meditation, but with regard to our life. What are you doing here? Because if we don't ask that question, it's easy for our life to be carried away in an unconscious momentum, for us never to actually discover what is possible, the immense potentiality of a human birth, of a human life. So what are we doing here? There are two aspects of what we're engaged in, in the context of a retreat and the practice that we're exploring. And we could call these two aspects training and discovery. And they really go together. So training, perhaps we already had some sense that we're engaged in a process of training here. We have some instructions, some forms, some meditative tools that we're employing and we can see how there's a, a process of cultivating certain qualities of certain capacities of heart and mind through the process that we have undertaken. We see that it requires a certain steadfastness, a certain dedication, a certain wholehearted commitment to the process of paying attention, to the process of connecting with our experience in order to actually begin to more fully inhabit our life consciously, in order to more fully inhabit our experience and each moment with a degree of sensitivity and a degree of connection and a, and a degree of interest. That while these things may sound to us like they would be useful, beneficial, it's not just that we can do it and make it happen. We actually have to place ourselves with, a, with quite a firm resolve, in fact, in the path of our conditioning, of our habitual tendencies of mind, that actually do not lead to a quality of connected or sustained presence that actually lead to a degree of fragmentation, of disconnection and a, a sense of alienation from our own life, in fact. So in training the mind, one of the aspects of training that we're engaged in, we see that the mind has a certain momentum when we arrive, at least for most of us. We don't come, sit down and just find that in fact calmness, stillness and spaciousness is what we encounter. What we tend to more encounter is busyness, is movement, is activity. The thinking process of the mind, often charged with a high degree of emotion and uh, pressure born of that emotion, pressure born of fear, pressure born of 
wanting, pressure born of hope and excitement and equally of dread and anxiety and often a mixture of all of these seems to keep our mind spinning. And when it's spinning towards the hope and excitement of course it feels kind of nice it's kind of attractive. We think, well, this isn't too bad. I wouldn't mind a bit more of this. But it doesn't take too long before we find it spinning in the other way, with more of the sense of struggle, of fear, of hardness or harshness in our inner environment, where we find ourselves relating to our life, to our experience, from a place of not wanting to experience this and not wishing to experience that very process of mind itself that is expressing that that wish or that desire to not be in contact with something difficult. This momentum of fear and desire is something we have to see very clearly in order to actually begin to address and to transform our lives. And so in beginning with our practice and establishing and deepening our practice, this will be a part of it. Seeing our mind, seeing what's going on in the process of being here. And actually stepping out of the momentum. Seeing the mind reaching after one experience and then reaching after another. Seeing the mind wanting to recoil, withdraw, slip away or slip around another experience that we don't like. And how this incessant process is actually profoundly unsatisfying for us, actually deeply painful. So we bring our mind back to where we are. We connect with the breath, with our body, with a sense of consciously knowing this moment. And we see that in fact perhaps how we have lived much of our lives and this is not our fault there's nothing to blame us for because really until we learn differently we would not know any better but we've lived our lives somewhat gorging on experience stuffing ourselves with experience feeding on experience trying to actually somehow satisfy a hunger a need deep within that all that experience, all the things that we have contacted, all the activities that we've done, somehow doesn't quite ever seem to meet. That, that need, that hunger doesn't actually seem to be satisfied, at least not for any length of time. And it's nonetheless insatiable. There's a sense of wanting more, wanting more. And I sometimes think of our mind as being a little bit like a puppy or a dog. One thing about a dog, come on, different than a cat, I don't know why that should be, but it just seems to be, is that a dog, at least uh, some dogs and uh, many dogs as I understand it, if you give it food, it will eat it. Makes sense, really. Give it food, it will eat it. If you give it more food, it will eat that as well. If you keep giving it food, it will keep eating it until it's sick. Once it's been sick, it'll eat some more if you keep feeding it food. It's like this ability to actually just keep taking in despite the fact that it's actually making it feel unwell. Whereas, it seems a cat, 
from a Dharmic perspective it would seem, in this case, a, a wiser being, without getting into the argument about cats and dogs. Um, a cat will eat until it's full and then it will stop. And if there's food left, it will come back and eat it later when it's hungry again. But our minds are a little bit like an untrained dog in that regard. And that we, we stuff ourselves with experiences. So many experiences are available to us in this world today. Our Western culture is remarkable for the width and breadth and degree and extent and variety and intensity of experience that is available to us. And yet, the effect of simply taking it all in in an unquestioned sort of process of consumption, the effect of taking it all in is that we actually feel stuffed. We actually feel sick. And we yet, unfortunately, often don't know why we feel stuffed. Why we feel sick. Why we feel so full. Like there's no space in my life. Why is that? Because as soon as there's space, we find something to fill it with. We look something to fill it, for something to fill it with. I mean, here on retreat, there's actually a lot of space. There's a really vast amount of space that's offered to us. And yet it's really hard to receive it, despite that we might actually wish for space, yearn for space, perhaps above all things. And yet the space to just be here and not have to do anything. Can we receive it? It's not easy. We get busy doing something in our minds. Or we might just have some space, some there's no pressure on us, no demand, since we're walking through the corridor. And yet we find ourselves going to the notice board to read the notices for the second time, or the third, or the fourth. And it's like, wow, they're fascinating, the schedule. So there's a walking, and then there's a sitting. And then there's another walking, wow! It's followed by a sitting, then there's a meal. Oh, that's great. <laughs> but we knew all that before we looked at the schedule. And yet, somehow, we're entertained, we're engaged, something in us isn't happy to not have something to grab hold of, to not have something to fill up the space. Or we walk through the dining room and we're on our way to do walking meditation. We heard the instruction, we said, yeah, I'll go and do some walking meditation. See what I discover. What happens is we walk past the tea room and we see this box. On this box, it's got something written. We pick it up and we start reading it. Wow, it's amazing. It's about where the tea comes from and what's in it and all the different ingredients and how many proportions it's got of this and of that. And it's like we're fascinated by something that's really quite boring. We wouldn't really sort of write home to our friends and say, wow, I went on a retreat, you know, and there were these amazing, sort of remarkable, profound things written on tea bags or on tea bag boxes. And yet we get so interested in it. Like, what is it about us that is both drawn towards and yet not often at ease with having space? Here we learn to actually stand steady in the face of that momentum that wants to fill us up, that wants to do more, that wants to have more, to consume more which is really the mantra of our culture. So it's not surprising that we find that's our tendency. And the belief, the concept, the idea behind that, I, that, that sort of 
whole value system is that if you get and have more, you'll be happier. But it's not true. It's not true. We in our culture have more than any group of people have ever had in the history of the human existence. And we're not necessarily any happier. That's pretty clear. If you look at the amount of violence, the amount of sickness, the amount of breakdown in relationships within families, within communities, the amount of fear. We're not actually any happier for all our immense access, our incredible capacity to have access, our privilege to have access to so much. And so there's a process of just putting it down, putting it down, see how we're drawn. Even if we don't have any steam to get hold of, just the tendency of the mind to get drawn towards experience, learning to put it down. Knowing that if we had a small puppy, we wouldn't just feed it food until it got sick. Because A, it would get sick, and B, it would get fat. And it wouldn't really be very happy or healthy. And yet it doesn't know any better. It's like wisdom needs to actually restrain that, that hunger, that need, that wanting from seeking to be satisfied in a way that does not work. So hence it's rather simple here. There isn't food whenever you want it. You can't just go to the refrigerator if you feel a little sort of peckish. You have to wait till it turns up. And when it turns up, it is what it is, not necessarily what we might have thought or planned for. This is a training. A training to just actually receive what is here learning to receive our life as it is, rather than constantly trying to add something to it, or make something different of it than what it actually is. And together with that, that training and restraint, and just being simple, there's a, a training in focus and steadying the mind. It's a little bit like training the puppy, staying with that metaphor, training it to walk behind us, knowing that in order to live in our world, a dog, a puppy, it needs to actually be able to follow, it needs to be able to know when to stop, when to sit, when to heal, because otherwise it won't survive very happily in the world of human beings. And if we have a puppy, how would we train it? What would we do? Well, we get the puppy, we put it behind our heel, and we say to it, heal! And what does the puppy do as we take a step forward? Does it follow us? No, it wanders off. So we get it, bring it back and say, heal. We take another step, maybe the puppy follows us, maybe not. But sometimes what happens, and this is when we're training our mind, we see the puppy runs off and wants to go smell a flower. We say, bad dog, come back here. I told you not to run away. It runs off again, this time chasing a butterfly. You bad dog, I told you not to do that. Smack. If we treat a puppy like that, do you think it's going to want to come and walk around behind our heel? It's a bit like that with our mind. If we're hard on ourselves, if we judge ourselves every time the mind wanders off, pretty soon the mind gets the idea that actually it's not such a fun place to hang out, that place where he's trying to get me to be. I think I'll escape at first opportunity. And the tendency we have to be hard on ourselves, to be harsh on ourselves, is part of why our mind tends to want to disappear. It tends to go somewhere else. Because actually... When it's there, when we actually are present with our mind, often we're not that kind to it. Often we're demanding, we're judging, we're expecting it or wanting it to be different than it is. To 
to fit into some model, some preconceived idea of how it should be or how I'd like it to be. But if with our puppy, when it runs off, we just pick it up and bring it back and say, OK, heal, fine. There you are. Oh, look, that's where you've gone. Wow, you went there. OK, amazing. The amazing places our mind can go. In just a moment, we're somewhere else. We hear the sound of a bird. And then we think, oh, how nice, the pleasant sound. That we remember that we heard a sound of a bird just like that when we were walking with our our teenage sweetheart. And how sweet it was. And we have this feeling of, oh, how lovely. That was wonderful. And then we remember what actually happened with our teenage sweetheart. And how horrible and painful and sticky it got. We go, oh, I mean, oh, my life, it's so hard. And, and, you know, we go through all these worlds. And you just think, oh, that's where we are. There's no random events. It's actually a process. There's a, a lawfulness, a causality in that process. And yet we just come back wholeheartedly. In doing that, we actually find we've become attracted to being present. Rather than punishing ourselves for not being good at it, we can actually honour the fact that the moment we realise we're not here, in that moment we're actually already here. Strangely, paradoxically almost. In the moment of realising that you're lost, you're no longer lost. When you're lost, actually, it's no problem at all. You're just gone. It's only the moment we come back and realise that we're lost that somehow we feel compelled to make a problem out of that. When it's not, it's just what happens. So in that moment, begin again. It's like, okay, we're here. And in this way, we actually train. We actually strengthen that capacity to simply be present. And together with that training of the mind, there's a training of the heart. The training of the heart is the process of actually facing our life as it is, not as we would wish it to be. Because our life is not always as we wish it. It's not always the way we want it. And we are not given the power or the capacity to control our life or the world to make it the way we want it. We can't do that. We can't do that to our own minds or our body. Have you noticed that sometimes the body is comfortable and we think, lovely, finally I've found out the right posture. I've just got it right. Now I know. I need to have my cushion just like this and sit just like that one blanket, not two, or whatever, we think, I've got it. And then, a little while later, the body's uncomfortable again, or it's too hot, or it's got cold, or something's not quite right. Our bodily experience is not in our control. Our mind, even less in our control. We see how it moves, how it shifts and shimmies, chasing one thing, running away from another. This isn't easy for us to acknowledge. There's something in us that wants it to be different than that. And often, to this experience of things not being in control, we add a second dimension of suffering and of struggle. And this we can learn to release ourselves from. The Buddha spoke again and again about the fact that our life does involve challenge. It is hard at times to experience what it means to be alive, to be born, to go through the process of life, of ageing, and ultimately of death, to experience the, the life of the heart, the feelings. You know, all of us experience difficult 
conditions in our lives. There's not one of us, no one, in this world who, who goes through life without at times being challenged. And there's a really, or, or at times, experiencing difficulty. There's a really simple illustration for this, or at least I find it useful, simple, straightforward. It's like, we might think that if we did it right, you know, if we got it right, that our life would actually just be happy all the time. There'd be no difficulty, there wouldn't be any problems. Often we think that somehow we got it wrong because there is difficulty or challenges. But in our life, if we love someone or something, at some time we'll be parted from them through decision, accident or death. And when we're parted from something or someone that we love, we will experience pain, grief, sadness, sorrow. It will not be an easy thing for us. This is for sure. And if we don't, in our life, love something or someone, that will be painful. That will be grievous. That will cause us sorrow and sadness. So really, kind of no way out. If we love something, there will be sadness in our life. Or loss, or sorrow. If we don't love something, there will be sadness or sorrow. And so, how do we face a life in which at times we're touched, impinged upon, affected by that which is difficult to bear? One of my teachers, Ajahn Sachito, who's a, uh, a Buddhist monk and the abbot of the monastery in, um, in Sussex, Chithurst Buddhist monastery, he once said that suffering or dukkha, unsatisfactoriness or dissatisfaction as it's perhaps translated, suffering, dukkha, dissatisfaction arises where our heart has not yet grown enough to encompass our life as it is. Or something like that, he said. And we see the places we resist, the places we struggle with our experience. We struggle with the fact that our mind wanders off. We struggle with the, the difficult emotions or the discomforts of our body. And in that struggling, we add to the challenge or the suffering that is in the experience another whole layer, another whole level of struggling. And the Buddha, in his teaching, he said, that while there is this element of challenge, of difficulty in life that involves the reality of having a body that is born, that ages, that is subject to sickness and death that involves having a heart that will be touched at times by pain, by sorrow, by grief that involves having a mind that sometimes doesn't get what it wants that sometimes is exposed to what it doesn't like or is separated from what it does like that this is so for all of us but that what we don't need to do is add another level of suffering to that by wishing that somehow this would not be so so what we see in our practice is when difficult things arise actually acknowledging that they're there and seeing the tendency to close down to withdraw to want to disconnect from our experience and to actually see, can I turn towards this? Can I open to this? Can I allow myself to experience this? 
just as it is, just right now. Is that possible for us? Because this is the training of our heart. This is the process in which our heart actually begins to grow. Its capacity begins to increase. When we live our life in fear, in fear of the difficult, in fear of the challenging, we find our world shrinks. It gets smaller and smaller. And there's a corresponding sense of our heart closing, tightening, hardening, shrinking even where we feel that we cannot really open to our life. And we feel this as a deep loss of connection, as a deep loss of the, the vitality and the, the nourishment that our life can offer us when we're open, when we're actually willing to receive it. When we're willing to actually face the tendencies of mind and heart that remove or disconnect us. And to, in this regard, really look very clearly at fear in our lives. This is something that in its forms of anxiety and stress and the more obvious forms of fear. This is something of an epidemic in our world and in our culture. Our culture is driven by fear fear of not having enough fear of not being good enough fear that somehow we will be left behind if we do not rush, if we do not hurry if we do not keep busy producing and consuming and fear is something we meet in our practice To notice with fear, it's so useful. To notice that fear is something happening right now. It's always something happening right now. The effect of fear is to make us think about the future, about something that has not yet happened. Because the future is unknown, it is possible that many fearful things could happen, it's true. But because they have not yet happened, we cannot actually deal with them. And so fear has the effect of paralyzing us because we cannot actually deal, we cannot actually respond to, we cannot actually address that which has not happened. We can only respond to that which is happening right now. And what is happening right now is an experience that if we actually recognize it, if we actually turn towards it and face it in this moment as a felt experience, we see that perhaps it's not as bad as we think it is going to be. There's the, uh, the lovely uh, quote that's ascribed to Mark Twain with regard to the, the amount of power and suffering that is given, or power that is given and suffering that is caused by our fear of the future and our tendency to worry and be anxious about things. He once said, almost all of the worst experiences of my life never actually happened. It's the worrying about them that's the worst experience, not the thing itself. When difficult things happen, we actually can deal with them. But when they haven't happened, we can't deal with them. We can't deal with them. 
and we're asked to actually just meet what is difficult right now. We can't deal with this pain in my knee for a whole 45 minutes, or this ache in my heart for the whole of my life. But that hasn't happened. In that moment it's just, can I open to this ache in my heart right now? Can I be with this pain in my knee right now? Can I actually connect with this? Because the training of the heart is a training in connection. A training in coming back, opening to. That the sense of not feeling satisfied, the sense of being unnourished in our life, of something lacking, of something missing, is so much born of our loss of connection to where we are. Our loss of connection to the very vitality and aliveness of our life as a felt experience. And so learning to release ourselves from the habit of disconnection, from the habit of resistance, from the power of fear that says, I cannot be here. To actually see that even in the moment of that fear, we are here. If we can turn towards that. And as we actually settle in our practice, as we become more able, more agile with the art and the skill of this training, which is a training in being consciously present and opening to what is here. We actually find that there's a quality of, of stillness, of steadiness, of, of okayness that starts to touch us, perhaps in moments, perhaps just brief, all too brief glimmers of something that is not of the ordinary and yet it's also very ordinary. Something that actually feels to be steady or stable or at ease, that isn't something. And yet we feel a steadiness, a stability, an ease or a well-being in moments that is very much founded on that quality of connection, of coming back into our experience. We start to feel a sensitivity beginning and it may just feel like glimmers. I mean, not to be looking for something that's the big sort of flashing light saying, this is it, you've got it, you're getting there, or you've arrived. But just noticing what happens, what changes for us. How sometimes we just look as we're walking quietly, mindfully back and forth. We just look at a flower in the grass or a, a leaf on the tree. And we just see it with a quality that actually speaks volume to us, volume to us. And it uses no words. There's just something in that qualitative connection that happens when we're really wholeheartedly present. And to notice those moments, they may be not so frequent, but they do happen, they do occur. They're probably not a stranger to any of us. And yet, all too often we rush past them. Rush past them looking for something else because that's what we're so conditioned to do. 
as we deepen into our being, deepen into our life, into our experience, sitting, walking, paying attention, what is it that we start to notice? What is it that we start to discover? We see ourselves very clearly. We start to see the movement and momentum of our life. And how actually wearying it is to be caught in that momentum. As we as we're no longer feeding into it so much, in the way we're being here, the way of our practice, it begins to slow. That momentum begins to actually discharge itself. And we actually start to just feel ourselves more directly, more fully. We start to notice what's going on within more clearly. We see how much we're centered around thoughts of me and my life and what's going on. And how at the core of that there's often a sense of being somehow separate and removed and different and distant from others and the world around us. It's like sometimes as uh, people often report in the interviews. We're sitting in the meditation hall and you know, it's the usual combination of a few breaths, a few thoughts, the odd dozy, restless, confused and agitated moment. Um, and the occasional sort of almost seems accidental glimpse of clarity and steadiness and connection. And then at some point we kind of feel like, oh, this has been going on a while. I don't seem to be getting anywhere. We open our eyes and look around. And it seems like everyone else is sitting there so calm, so quiet. They're obviously just, you know, just on the edge of Buddhahood and full awakening. And yet we are a long, long way from there. And we feel that sense of just so much our life, so different and apart from everyone else in that moment. And often, of course, what then happens is the person closes their eyes, sort of resigns themselves to, well, oh well, here we are, misery, that's my lot. And someone else opens their eyes and looks around and comes to the same conclusion. It's like we somehow think that everyone else is really different than me. And sometimes, of course, we think, hey, I'm really great, my meditation is wonderful, really good concentration, you know leaving all that lot behind, I'll be going on to greater things at any moment now, we're imagining, you know, three months retreats or shaving our heads and ordaining. <laughs> on the strength of a few moments of mindful attention to the breathing when we thought, hey, it's working, I've got it. And of course, when all that falls apart, we realise, oh now I'm thinking about it, I've lost it. <laughs> we think, oh, actually it's hopeless, I'd better give up, I can't even know if I can be bothered staying till tomorrow. <laughs> And just that quickly, it shifts from one to another. And then we listen, perhaps in the small groups, or if we've been doing this over some time, we've <coughs> had occasion to hear people speaking, or in Dharma talks, we hear, oh, that seems to be going on for everyone. It's not just me, it's not just my mind. It seems to be this is what goes on for people. The sense of constantly relating and referring to everything from the point of view, what does this mean about me? What does this say about me? What does this tell you about who I am? What does it tell me about who I am? And often, unfortunately, the conclusions aren't always as flattering as we would wish or hope for. And then it feels like, well, this 
a spiritual path, this meditation, it seems like it's going to be a lot of work. Because there's obviously a lot of problems in there, there's a lot of things to fix, there's a long way to go. Um, you know, even just the idea of being mindful seems like an insurmountable challenge, let alone, you know, awakening my life, whatever that might mean. And yet, if we look and see what's going on, if we watch this, we see actually this process of life is unfolding. And we are here conscious of it. We see our experience keeps changing. There's an element of of training, as I said, in which we're kind of cultivating a process, a quite a methodical, intentional process of of strengthening certain capacities of heart and mind. And then there's a process that goes on parallel to that, which is really keeping a brightness or an interest in what's happening here. What's this about? What am I doing? Or what is being revealed in this process? That isn't so much a training as really an openness to discovery. And what we start to notice together with that sense of the centrality of me, or the apparent centrality of me, of myself, of my life, of all my concerns, my fears, my needs, we also notice that this world is in a constant flow and flux, that all experiences come and go. There's a, a teaching from the, uh, the northern schools of Buddhism called the Diamond Sutra, and in it there's a, a beautiful stanza that refers to the, the fleeting nature of our lives, how things keep changing. It says, Thus you should look upon this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. And there's a, a sense of the evanescence, the transience of life, but that so, I think, beautifully evokes and expresses that actually, if we look at our life, we see it is flowing, it is moving. And when we look back on it, we see actually it's happening rather quickly. You know, how many times we said, I can't believe it's ten years later. I can't believe I've arrived here and I'm no longer a child or I'm no longer young or I'm no longer middle-aged or, or whatever. We see our life moving and we see our experience moving and have you noticed how many things happen today how quickly the mind changes from one condition to another how the body changes how the weather changes how the temperature changes experience changes this is one of the fundamental truths of experience and because it changes and it's constantly changing. Look and see for yourself. It is changing. Because it's changing, our struggle with it doesn't really make sense. Our struggle to try and keep hold of or to get the kinds of experience that we want, that we like, that we think will make us happy. None of these experiences can last. Because nothing lasts. All things come and go. Because none of these experiences last, no experience can give us lasting satisfaction. And it doesn't make sense to try and hold on to them. Because doing so is a struggle, and it's so wearying, so tiring. It's like holding on to a rope that's being pulled through our fingers. We get rope burn. 
And not only do we get rope burn, but we don't manage to keep hold of the rope. And likewise, the fact that things change means that it doesn't make sense to push away and to fight against the difficult. Because difficult experiences arise. But learning to embrace them from a place of wholehearted presence, of willingness, of courage to grow in the face of this, knowing that these two will change, that all things change, whatever comes, goes, that the difficult, we don't need to push it away, because it will leave in its own time, according to its nature, not necessarily when we want it to, but in its own time. And often what we struggle with the most in the face of the difficult is not its presence, not the presence of the difficult, but our fear that this will continue forever. And how will we cope if that is so? To know that things change, to see that things change, to examine our experience, to understand this for ourselves. And to understand that therefore things in themselves that come and go, cannot be the basis of our satisfaction, nor ultimately can they be the basis of our suffering. They are the material of our life. They are the journey. They are the path. Our experience is important. And we give it attention because it's the path we want, the path of awakening path of training and of discovery. And we see also as we look at our experience that things that are changing and that we can't really hold on to, that what we call me and who I am is made up of these. It's made up of thoughts, of feelings, of our body, our heart and our mind. And this is changing and something we can't take hold of. Although we have stories about who we are or what we are, if we look at our life and our experience carefully, we see that the models and the images don't really fit. And we spend a lot of time and effort and energy trying to fit our models to our life, or fit our life to our models, our models of who we are, or who we should be. And yet, actually, maybe that's not really possible. And the fact that we haven't succeeded, we haven't managed to do that, is evidence of this. That sense of being somehow me at the centre of all things. To look at this, to examine this, what is really happening right here, right now? What is occurring in this moment? If we leave aside the history that seems to tell us our story of who we are and the future that seems to present to us the hope of who we may be. What and who are we in this moment? There is simply the conscious knowing of experience that is not actually divisible into oneself and the rest of the world because it arises by the interaction, by the meeting, interdependently, interconnectedly, the meeting of what we call me and what we call the world. This is what is arising in this moment. This is our experience. And all that is revealed, is known. What is that 
revealing to us what might we have to discover about the nature of life, of what we might call our life, but perhaps more truly would call life itself. What is it to be here, to be conscious, to be profoundly and wholeheartedly interested in the truth of life? What is it to be simply present, wholeheartedly connected to just now, to just this, without making now or this into anything, and yet not taking anything away from it? as we come more and more fully to rest in simply being present, conscious and awake, we begin to sense, to touch, to feel in the very core of our being that dimension of life which is peaceful, which is unbound and yet which is ungraspable and yet can be discovered, can be known. And in this discovery, in this realization, we will come to see that what we are is not different than what life is, and that we are not apart from all that lives. And that what makes sense and what naturally flows from a life that is deepening through training of heart and mind, through the interest in discovery. That what flows from this life is actually a care and a concern for all that lives, for all of this world the beings and the forms, ourselves and others, that caring, compassion and kindness is the natural response to life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.